and I'm in the middle front seat next to him and Udo's sitting next to me and I'm having to slap the driver and grab the wheel so we don't go off the road or we could have just killed all the best climbers in the world. Podiums, an audio exploration of climbing World Cups from previous years and previous eras. I'm your host, John Bergman. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk some comp climbing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Past Podiums, and in particular, welcome to this special edition, another bonus episode, so to speak, and one that I'm stoked to share with you. We've just finished chronicling the 2014 Boulder season, and I figured, why not put a capstone on it similarly to how we put a capstone on the 2013 Boulder season, back with our special edition interview with Eula Verm. So, to mix things up a bit for this one, I thought it'd be interesting and appropriate to chat with professional photographer Eddie Falk. So here's the backstory on Eddie. He was a photographer on the World Cup circuit at this time in question, this 2014 season. He was traveling with the athletes, he was staying in the same hotels as the athletes, He was on the mats snapping photos of the athletes during all the rounds, of course. But then he was also at like the after parties. He was at the the morning after hotel breakfasts. In other words, he was just part of the whole scene. But I think the fact that he was a photographer as opposed to a competitor gives him a pretty unique perspective. Eddie would eventually go on to become the IFSC's official photographer, and he'd stay in that role for a number of years. But we kind of kept this interview mainly focused on those seasons that we've covered so far on this podcast, 2013, 2014. In fact, I think the real gem of this interview is that Eddie, as you will hear, gives basically behind-the-scenes details and behind-the-scenes drama of every comp that we just surveyed on that 2014 Boulder season schedule, starting in Chongqing, then Baku, then Grindelwald, etc. And all of those stops will be really familiar to you if you've followed along for this whole season that we've done. Eddie is a multi-talented guy. He's always a fascinating interview. I also feel fortunate to call him a friend. He played a crucial role in documenting the competitors from a media perspective back when not many other outlets, climbing or otherwise, were giving much coverage to the World Cup scene. And so for that, I think he holds a really special place in competition climbing history. And I also think because of that, he's a a perfect guest for a show like this that celebrates that history. So strap in, because this is a good one. Here it is, my interview with Eddie Falk. 
started as the IFSC's, well, you became the IFSC's official photographer in 2015, and then you did that for about five years, but you were on the circuit for a couple of years prior to that. Yeah, uh, so I first came to the World Cups in 2013. Um, I came along with James Cassay, who was coming over from Australia, and I wanted to take photos of the best in the world. Were you like buddies with him? And it was just kind of like, hey, I want you to, Was what, did he just say like, I want you yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were the same, same circle. We we climbed together a lot in Australia and um, his wife at that stage, girlfriend was one of my regular climbing partners in Sydney because he lived in Melbourne. We all lived in Sydney. Um, and so we trained together, climbed together a lot. And yeah, he said, do I want to go? And, I, you know, I'd never got to a World Cup as a competitor. I qualified by being in the top three in New Zealand a couple of times back at like the turn of the century. And I'd always wanted to go to a world cup, but I'd always felt I wasn't ready and God, I wasn't ready. Like once I turned up to a world cup, I was like, yeah, nowhere near. Like part of me wishes I, it's kind of like, you know, Heiko Wilhelm, he did a couple of world cups and knew he was nowhere near the level, but at least now he's done a couple of world cups. I kind of wish that side of me that I'd done a couple back when I was competing before I blew my knee up. But, um, you know, we're, we're talking over 20 years ago now, so it's let bygones be bygones. Um, but, yeah, so I went with James Cassay in 2013, and that was a huge eye-opener because I had no idea people that short could climb that well. Um, you know, the first thing that struck me when I got to a World Cup was, oh, my God, everyone's tiny. Uh, second thing that struck me, because this is back, you know, nearly a decade ago, was, oh, my God, how many of these guys are smoking? <laughs> you go to a side door and it was like the naughty kids outside school. And, and it was people you wouldn't expect as well, like world champions. And you're like, oh, you guys are so European. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so 2013 was four comps. And it was during those four comps I decided to start the circuit because I went, why is there no media about these guys in English? The tiny little captions in Climbing Mag or Rock and Ice or, you know, whatever the UK magazine at the time would be. But it'd be like a sidebar. And the more I got to know these people, whether it be, you know, the first two I really got to know pretty well would be like Jan and Yene. Um, but then also got to know Shauna pretty quickly. Puccio was like the friendliest person. You know, quite literally, the first World Cup I ever went to hadn't even it was the day before comp hadn't met any world-class climbers and I'm in a phone shop buying a French SIM card and Alex Puccio just walks in and goes, are you Eddie? And I'm like, yes, you're Alex Puccio. What the, you know, you got to remember at this stage, I hadn't met any of these people. And she's like, I was just having lunch and I've got too much pizza. So James said to bring you it because you'll, you'll have it and gave me like half a pizza. This is a girl I've never even met. I'm just like, what the, so, so Alex, Alex Puccio was doing pizza delivery for James Cassay to give you pizza. That's your introduction to her. One of the greatest, you know, yeah, that, that was how scene. I met her. And then the same day there was um, a climber from Hong Kong traveling with us, a guy called Danny, uh, Danny Ho. And he said, oh, you know, I want to go visit um, the Korean team because he's from Hong Kong. You know, can you drive me up? So I drive up and we knock on the door and Jane Kim opens the door and it's like her and um, 
couple of others, I can't remember names, sorry, right now, but I'm like, you know, I have never even seen these people climb. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm at, I'm at her hotel room, you know. So it was a surreal introduction. And then the first, back in the day, World Cups were so much looser than they are now. So that first World Cup was four three freestanding boulders. So um, they had a curtain, curtains behind, and the climbers' isolation or like staging was behind the boulders. And we were able to go back as photographers and shoot out on the angle, like something you could never, ever do today. And I still remember, because I'd watched the early videos of these guys. I was absolutely, like, fascinated by them. And and you have your your star crushes, the ones that you're a real fan of watching, but you do, you've never met because you've never been to Europe. And I remember, like, taking photos of Yule the Worm on the first two problems and being like, oh, my God, it's Yule the Worm. Oh, I'm such a fan. But then... I decided to do the magazine. So I started to interview some of the guys and some of them were really easy to interview and others were recalcitrant. But for instance, I interviewed uh, Clement Beshin and Yene Kruder from Slovenia and easiest thing ever. But Mina Markovic would not grant me an interview. She was, you know, I don't know who you are. I'm too busy, blah, blah, blah. And Yene and Clement cornered her and said, give him an interview uh he's a good guy and um so we yeah she came up to me and i asked her one question and she just went and just vomited her whole history onto me for like 25 minutes of just not even another question asked she just told me a life story and then she goes that is it. Thank you. I am done. And I was like, that's okay. It's the best interview ever. I didn't have to ask you anything. <laughs> but like, and years later, now I'm really good friends with Mina. But at the time, we don't have many intimidating climbers now. But at the time, there were intimidating climbers. And Mina was an intimidating climber. And the Russians were very intimidating back in the day. They were, you, you know, Dmitry Sharifudinov, Rustam Galmanov. They were... You know, Dimitri even said to me, he hated all the other climbers because the only way he could get out of where he was in Russia was to win comps and make money to improve his life. But the other people he was competing against didn't need that. They already had comfortable lives. So he needed to win. They wanted to win. And so he said, you know, it wasn't until the very end of his career that they really became friends. Until then, they were always the enemy. And you really got that demeanor when you first met um, Dimitri. He was incredibly intimidating back in the day. And so it was funny because that was the same year I met Natalie Berry and we became very good friends. And we ended up traveling together for some of the World Cups. And, and our mission was to get a Russian to talk to us. That was our whole thing was getting a Russian to talk to us because the Russians would not speak to anyone and so we were like, we were, we are going to get Russians to talk to us. And then after 2013, when Yula and Jan won in Innsbruck, their first World Cups, and got totally doused in champagne by, um, by Akio, went, changed at the hotel, came back, and was milling outside the front of the wall, trying to um, get ready, and Rustam comes up. And Rustam, I'd actually shared a hostel room with at the comp before and said hi to him every day. And he's like, mm, just wouldn't say a thing. 
and he comes up and i'm like oh dude you coming to the after party like, no no i didn't do well i have to go train tomorrow so no after party i'm like dude take the night come to the after party like no no dance music is only good with drugs and now i cannot take drugs so no dancing for me <laughs> and then, like um yeah and then that was a mental after party night you know almost got in a fight with vna over natalie and like all sorts of shenanigans and slow dancing with mel sandoz who like only speaks english when she's drunk and meeting david lama and david lama's dad and yeah so so that was 2013 and then i went back and i started the magazine because i had done all these interviews so i just self-published and 2014 i went i'm going to do a few more so i booked a longer break from my job uh, so i worked as a um quality uh analyst at a big teleco in, in australia and i booked a six-month career break so that i could do all these world cups and then two weeks before my career break they made a whole lot of people sadly not me redundant and then said oh you can't go on your career break because we need you now because we made all these people redundant I said, well, sorry, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I've already got my flights booked. You know, here's my notice. I'm quitting. And um, which sucked because I wish I'd been made redundant because it would have been an extra hundred grand in my pocket straight away, which would have helped a lot. Um, but yeah, so I went across and started doing all these World Cups, went to the whole Boulder season, which was 2014 was a bit of a, it wasn't a debacle year, but it was a really surreal year. Because you had um, Chongqing first, which was reasonably good, but Chongqing is so hot that it's a very inconsistent um, World Cup. Like it's not when you're talking temperatures in the high 30s Celsius, you know, the high 90s or hundreds and Fahrenheit. It's it's a bit of a shit um, storm as to who will do well because it's just. I think um, Jan won the bouldering that year, and I think he got three tops and 27 attempts or something absurd because he won because he did the um, dyno and he had 17 attempts on the dyno in four minutes, <laughs> which is insane. It's like one every five seconds or something ridiculous. Um, then we went to Azerbaijan, which was it was completely corrupt. It was completely surreal. We're flying from China to Azerbaijan directly. And I get bumped up to first class, which is just slightly bigger seats with Mina, Leslie Wajastic and Shauna Coxie. And then all these Azerbaijani businessmen in black suits literally coming up trying to buy Mina because she's blonde. Like, it was transactional. It was, you're blonde. You come live with me. I give you a hundred thousand dollars a year. You have nice house. <laughs> We're like, what the? <laughs> then we get to the venue. Everything's corrupt. Everything's crazy. We go on this trip out to the sand dunes. Oh, sorry, out to this petroglyphs it looks like waco it's this incredible boulder field but we're not allowed to boulder we can only look at the petroglyphs what we didn't know is that actually picked up all the petroglyphs and put them in the same place so we you know it's not like we were harming the landscape so we had this minibus and it was most of the world's famous climbers and then the driver was really drunk or really hung over and he's falling asleep on the drive back to baku and i'm in the middle front seat next to him and Udo's sitting next to me and I'm having to slap the driver and grab the wheel so we don't go off the road 
or we could have just killed all the best climbers in the world. And we're screaming. And so we had these Azerbaijani minders with us and we're screaming at them to let me drive because I can drive on both sides of the road. It doesn't matter. You know, I'm, you know, I, I'm in New Zealand and we drive on one side and Azerbaijan, they drive on the other, but I've done both. So I'm like, look, I can fucking drive. Let me drive. No, if he loses face, we'll be very bad for him. But yeah, if we all die, it'd be really bad for us. Then he gets out, pours a bottle of water over his head, speeds at like 140, 150 K an hour, the whole rest of the way back into town. We're all thinking we're just going to die. So the World Cup as well in Azerbaijan, they've never, they don't have any climbing scene. They don't know anything about climbing. So they just ordered all the most expensive holds they could. So Jackie got off and the route setting team got there. Have you ever heard this story? I've never heard this story. Well, so Jackie got off and Martin and the rest of the route setting team arrive on, I think it's Tuesday for like a Friday, Saturday comp or Saturday, Sunday comp, whatever it was. And they opened the boxes of holds. And the most expensive holds from Entrepris were like the kids' alphabet range and crocodiles and... So they're all playground holds and, you know, incredibly juggy, easy, impossible to set anything hard on holds. And so Jackie sends out and and Graham Alderson send out emergency messages to everyone to fill their bags when they fly into Azerbaijan from whatever gym they're at, put any holds they can into their bags so that they can build problems. And they're literally landing and going, okay, where's someone from the setting team? Here's a bag full of holds, and the setters drive down to the wall and add them to the collection. <laughs> and so this wall had it was out on this exposed peninsula out from the city. And Baku is Azerbaijani for windy, so it's a very windy venue. And the roof had crumpled, so there it was there was a roof over the wall and it had crumpled, so they had to take it down, which meant you then had four freestanding boulders in the sunlight in the desert heat. So it's on the Caspian Sea, but it's dry, desertish, 35 degrees sort of thing. So they go, oh, Graham goes up to Jackie and says, you know, can you set the men's in the shade side on the morning and the woman's in the shade side in the afternoon? And Jackie nods and sets the men's in the sun in the morning and the woman's in the sun in the afternoon. (laughs) And then... um, so it's an incredibly sexist place as a Bashan. So if a woman stands up, a man will always stand up because a woman is not allowed to stand over a man. Hmm. So all the brushes were women because that's a woman's job. All the judges were men because that's a men's job. But whenever the brushes would stand up, all the judges would stand up because a brusher couldn't stand up over them. So the judges were along the side of the stage on the platform in front. And then the judges, brushes and judges, same height. And if you watch the stream, you'll actually see it's like this of people standing up and sitting down in front of, so the guys videoing could hardly see the comp because people kept standing up in front of the cameras all the time because a woman would stand up. (laughs) And then it got to the night before the comp, it rained. So sorry, the night before semis and finals, it rained. So after qualification, and it doesn't rain much there, but it flooded the... um, the sewer, the porta potty truck, the toilet block truck, and all the raw sewage run under the mats in isolation. And so all the climbers were warming up over a stinking swamp of raw sewage. And, and so, you know, it's just Azerbaijan is the gift that keeps on giving. I'm missing so many stories just in the stories I'm telling you. And then 
you know, afterwards we got taken to the celebratory dinner. And at the same time, so sorry, we had the we had all the prize money sitting there in stacks of US dollars in this glass case. Except it disappeared half an hour before prize giving and no one got paid and it took the IFSC like years to get the money out of the Azerbaijanis. Uh, so no one got paid. Like the only other country which is really bad for paying is actually USA. Vale is always really bad. But um, yeah, the IFSC lost a lot of money because they had to pay and then try and recoup the money from the Azerbaijanis. But then we all got taken to this after party and sat at these tables we were made to sit at and then we couldn't leave and like Alex Pucci and that were flying at like five in the morning it's like two in the morning she's like we've got to go we've got to like you know pack our bags and get ready to leave no no we we stay till and so in the end a whole bunch of us just piled out and found our own way back and then the hotel charged 18 percent surcharge on credit cards not 1.8%, 18. So all the federations that were traveling on credit cards were absolutely reamed. And we had, because we'd flown in early, we did all these complimentary activities, like I said, going to Petroglyphs, and we got charged 30 euros a day for complimentary activities, even though they'd knock on our door every day and make us come out and make us get on the bus and make us go to the museum or whatever. And they just reamed, like it was the most corrupt comp. Wow. I, none of that came through on the live stream. I can tell you that. Uh, I always Well, they couldn't, they couldn't say. And one of the things you didn't see with the live stream, or you might see with the finals, is the camera angles were really bad because they uh, co-opted a whole lot of volunteers, as totalitarian states do, into doing the cameras. And then they were feeding all the important people, but none of the volunteers. And the volunteers all got hungry and left before finals. So the cam- there was no cameraman or the cameraman walked out. Uh, so the whole thing was a debacle on many levels. Uh, but we went from there to uh, Grindelwald, which is was amazing. Oh, my goodness. But that was also a spectacular World Cup because that's the one where Yine qualified. Did he qualify first to finals? I can't remember. I think he qualified first into finals and then fell asleep waiting for isolation to open. And his coach did as well. And they woke up as isolation shut and they ran down and sorry, you've missed isolation. So he didn't get to do finals. See, so that's interesting because I knew he had missed making it to finals. And as a result, he didn't climb in the finals. And I I think they mentioned that even on the live stream, but I don't think, I don't recall hearing it was because he fell asleep. I don't know if that was ever mentioned. So that's an interesting. So him and his coach, who's now the, um, the guy behind 360 holds they were basically asleep in the car in the car park they both like lay down to have a rest before and somehow both fell asleep and no one had set an alarm and they missed the time and then of course that was Shauna's first ever win so that was incredibly emotional um then Innsbruck that year was you know Innsbruck classic marketplatz world cup I think it was the last world cup at the marketplatz which was like an amazing venue so it was sad uh toronto um that was back when it was in the gym in toronto so it was pre so the year after was where they had the glass wall like the wall with ground glass and a protection this was just at a climbing gym only memorable thing about that comp for me i think was that jung Won chon's first final maybe 
Um, but more to the point, it was the first time I ever saw a squirrel and everyone was amazed because we went to Niagara Falls and everyone was looking at the falls and I was running around chasing a squirrel with my camera because I was so excited because we have no squirrels in my part of the world. I'd never seen a squirrel. I was fucking blown away. <laughs> that's cool. Um, that's how, um, you know, that's how, uh, that's how I would be if I was down under and I saw a, 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 kangaroo. a kangaroo or something. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, then, so there was Vale. Vale was, Vale was only good for what happened after Vale. So Vale, was, like it was no KCOM. It was really fun because I stayed with Shauna and, um, I'm going to say Michaela Tracy and Nathan Phillips and they'd rented just this room, but it turned out to be a fucking palace. Um, but that was like a really fun trip because we went to be ice caves and bouldering and stuff afterwards. So that was good. And the other World Cup, the last World Cup of the season that year was Laval in France. And that was an absolute, because there was a whole lot of French climbers did really well because they were all sharing beta in staging and the officials weren't doing anything about it. And by the time someone said to Graham Alderson, hey, the French are cheating like assholes back there. And he ran in to stop them and threatened them all with yellow cards. But by that stage, they'd all done enough to qualify. So there's like three or four French in finals. Um, but it was because they were all sharing beta through semis. So I'd come back and tell the next French guy, oh, when you get to, you know, second problem, you do this, this. this. So they're all passing the beta to each other. Um, it was an interesting World Cup because um, so Dimitri was going to win the overall, except uh, Dinara had just broken up with him. Uh, in isolation at the World Cup before. Um, so he was a, a mess. And he, um, for I think for the first time ever, he didn't make semis, which then meant that Jan was in position and Jan ended up winning the overall. Um, and Dimitri just turned up for like the season prize giving. And if you look at the photos of him, he, he's so drunk. He's like almost catatonic level drunk and just... <sighs> Yeah, that, that's when sometimes climbing because it's a small sport gets a little bit incestuous and like, yeah, that was a uh, interesting. <laughs> so, can, can you speak a little bit to um about about honest store because you you were talking about like all these big names and and talking about different eras and milestones and stuff like that and I think uh, 2000, maybe the years prior to 2014, but the, you know, that was still kind of like the tail end of Anish Dorr's, uh Well, it was very much so Anish Dorr dominance. Um, you, you know, the exception was that you had um, Yula winning world champs, Shauna winning um, Grindelwald, but pretty much anyone winning something that wasn't um, wasn't Anna was the was a surprise. Anna was kind of Anna was inevitable in a different way to Yanya, but still inevitable. Anna would always just win World Cups by an attempt, by two attempts, by three attempts. Like like, like sometimes you'll see Yanya come out and she just owns the field. Anna never had the gap on the field physically but she had the gap on the field mentally. And especially in like four plus when it came down to the wire, she would, she would 
give more than the other girls potentially had. You know, I, you look at the number of times Melissa Lenev was second and she never won a World Cup. But she just didn't have that last bit that Anna could always find. Um, but she was also an incredibly intimidating person, just like ya- just like Yanya, um, because you knew you were in the presence of greatness. Uh, back in the day, the only climbers I got on with, but I sort of struggled to talk with, were Anna and Killian, just because they had that mana about them, that aura. Um, you, you kind of always felt like you were small fry when you went up to them, like you hadn't paid your dues yet. Um, but see, it was interesting because Akio was always around, but you never really thought of Akio. She just kind of tallied it up, tallied it up, did well, did well. But she was like, she was never quite Anna and then she was never quite Shauna and then she was never quite Yanya but she was always picking up the pieces. Yeah. And I, and I would argue that 2014, this Boulder season was among her best seasons ever. Uh, oh, completely. Akio. Yeah. Yeah. But she just somehow, even when she was like at the absolute top of a game, I don't know what it is. Cause she has massive star, star power in Japan, but her star power didn't translate as well as some of the younger climbers. Like for instance, Mio, I'd say has quite a lot of star power even though she's won a fraction of what Akio's won. Uh, Akio seems to have that star power in Japan, but it didn't translate to our audience so much. Um, but it was always like, it was always fun to watch. There was that great dynamic of that generation, which was like um, Akio, Shauna. Well, Shauna was the young kid of the generation, but it was Akio, Shauna, Yula, Anna, Melissa, and it was kind of like, and Petra was kind of like the the next in line, the elbowing her way in, sort of like you knew she had potential, but you didn't know how much. And um, Alex Puccio was sort of diminishing at that phase. Like she just, her life was a mess. She had broken up with her fiance as she was doing, you know. Um, so she would be really good when she'd appear, but then she wouldn't appear at some comps and um yeah then world champs munich just the best atmosphere i think i've ever had at a comp um you know seeing jan and yule are both in position to win going into like the last boulders and then jan you're pulling it off uh sorry yule pulling it off was just yeah like you know i was crying lots of people were crying it was pretty special what were some of the lessons, I guess, for lack of a better word, that you learned in those first couple years of actually being a regular on the circuit? I think the most important lesson I learned, although I think it's part of my nature generally, was not to be a sycophant, but to be a friend of the athletes. And I think some, some people that come into the scene they come into the scene just because they want to say, oh, look, I've, I'm friends with Ashima, or, oh, look, I know Natalia, oh, look, I know um, tomorrow, whatever. And, and it's more like they're more interested in the mileage that the name dropping will get them in the gym. And for me, it was there's like two sorts of sport photographers that do well. 
There's ones that stay completely separate from the subjects. So they are literally a fly on the wall and they never talk to the athletes and they're completely blah, 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 impartial. Um, or the flip side is that you build a relationship with the athletes. The athletes trust you. They're comfortable with you in their space and you have, I guess, a level of access that other people don't. Um, not because you have a level of access through an administrative force or anything, you have a level of access because at a personal level, you are, they know you're going to represent them well. They know you're going to present them in a favorable light. And so the, that was what most of what I learned in the first couple of years was give the athletes the respect they deserve and you'll get respect back. I think that's a little bit lost now with the current crop of photographers working um, because I think the, the lack of continuity and who shoots each events means that the climbers don't necessarily, you, you know, I get a lot of messages from climbers still because you could be 50th in your group. So a hundredth in the world cup. And I would have been there and I would have taken photos of you. And when you said, Oh, you know, did you get any photos of me? Oh yeah, of course I did. And now more and more I get messages from people going, they take photos of the top 20 people and then they go off and edit. And that actually doesn't tell the story of the comp because the story of the comp isn't just the semifinalists or the finalists. The story of the comp is that kid from Israel that's turned up from his first World Cup. That kid, that kid from Italy, you know, some kid from Italy turns up and does his first World Cup and comes 58th. And many years later, that kid is Stefano Gasolfi. But if no one took photos of him when he came 58th, that piece of history has gone forever. So I always believed in an important part of capturing the legacy was to be there for all the climbers, not just the stars. Because you, you don't know who's going to go up, who's going to go down. You don't know, you know, you don't know five years into the future. And so I learned, yeah, that to, to be part of the community was the best way for me to do that. it there for now but we'll get eddie back in the studio at some point to talk more about his memories from the wild west days of the comp scene in the meantime definitely go out and get plugged into all that eddie is doing media wise if you aren't already you can check out his instagram at the circuit climbing and also keep an eye out for a book that he'll be releasing soon full of a ton of world cup and world championship photos from his time as the IFSC's official photographer. On a personal note, big thanks to Eddie for taking the time to talk. I always enjoy our conversations. And big thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in for this one. We'll be back soon with another episode as we continue on our journey through the old World Cup seasons. Catch you next time on Past Podiums. quick before we get out of here thanks again for listening thanks to audio coffee mez dunami and leisha cower for doing the music and as always if you'd like to go back and watch some of the old world cups you can find them on the international federation of sport climbing's youtube channel see you next time